1: Let's talk about Santos. Last November, he was elected to the House of Representatives as a Republican. He had shown himself to be almost anything other than what he purported to be. His name, George Santos, at least that's what we think. He has used a number of aliases.
2: I as yes, George Santos. Uh, Chris, by now there's a pretty good chance we've all heard his story or many stories i guess and mike i think
3: we meaning americans have a pretty high threshold for tall tales quote unquote from our elected officials but he takes it to a whole nother level he
2: certainly does
1: among the whoppers that he's told voters he claimed to have worked at citibank and goldman Sachs. he worked at neither he claimed to have attended horace mann he didn't
2: Horace Mann is an elite prep school in the Bronx. Its alums include former U.S. Attorney General William Barr, author Robert Caro, and former New York Governor Elliot Spitzer.
1: He said he received a degree from college in economics and finance. He didn't graduate college. He claimed he played volleyball in college on a volleyball scholarship. He didn't do that either.
3: He says he went to Baruch College in Manhattan. Its volleyball rosters are
1: actually listed online. He claimed his mother was at the World Trade Center on 9 11. She was in Brazil. He claimed to be a proud American Jew. He's not Jewish.
3: I'm starting to feel like we're watching a late night infomercial for the latest cleaning
2: product. Where's Ron Popio when you need him? But wait, there's more.
1: He claimed he had four employees who died in the Pulse nightclub shooting massacre. He didn't. He claimed to own real estate and have deadbeat tenants he was unable to evict. He's never owned real estate, has himself been evicted from a rental, and he lives with his sister in her home.
2: And it gets worse.
1: And he collected charitable donations to help a naval vet care for his beloved and dying dog. Santos ended up stealing that money, leaving none for the dog's care, and the dog died. He's now under criminal investigation for that particular alleged fraud
4: when there's one lie that's been exposed it becomes very easy to sort of dig and look for all the rest of them this is like digging up the backyard of a serial killer But you know <laughs> there are bits that could be uncovered skeletons in closets as it were
2: i'm mike rogers and this is something offbeat the podcast where we go beyond the unusual headlines of the day This week we spoke with Dr. Aaron Heary, the psychology professor at Western University in Ontario, about how we evaluate whom to trust.
4: We have to make trust decisions every day, right? And we trust all kinds of people that we don't know very well, right? So you might send your kid to a school and you don't know their teacher at the beginning of the year. However, what you're willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the school because you trust the school. We also trust daycare providers, we trust the people we give our credit cards to at stores. So we we make all of these trust decisions on a regular basis and we use all kinds of cues in the environment. And sometimes those are visible similarity. Do you look like me? Do you act like me? And sometimes we look at these lower level social cues.
2: All right, your study is entitled, this is a mouthful here, The Influence of Similarity and Mimicry on Decisions to Trust. So what is the difference between those two then, similarity and mimicry?
4: So similarity has a bunch of different dimensions associated with it. And you can think about, you know, if you're first meeting someone, right, the kinds of questions you ask someone when you're first meeting them, for example, you know, where are you from? What do you like to do? Or, you know, where do you work? Those kinds of questions are designed to elicit, do I have similarity with this person? So, and they're, they're often about very, I would say, sort of, overarching, big picture, very conscious levels of, you know, am I like this person? So mimicry is one of these really low-level social cues. We might be able to use that as a cue to guess how similar someone is or is not going to react to the things that we say. So if I am saying something, if I nod, do you nod back, right? Right. As a university professor, I use that cue a lot in the classroom. I'll nod and I'll see if people mimic mimic me, and it's a, it's it's essentially an exchange, right? I'm saying to someone, "Do you understand what I'm, you know, this point that I've just made?" And when they nod back, I can understand that they have understood the point.
2: So, are these cues something we consciously learn, or do we subconsciously develop them as we grow up?
4: This is a really tricky question, right? It's an excellent question, but a tricky one. There's a hypothesis in this field that humans are these social creatures and that somehow we have these innate modules that allow us to, you know, preferentially attend to human faces and all kinds of other things. I'm not sure that I believe that at this stage in my training. I suspect that there's a very long learning history and that learning history begins the moment that you're born. We interact with caregivers. We interact with parents. We interact with, you know, a a variety of people who are going to give us those cues. And it takes a really long time for kids to, you know, for that, for that sort of social understanding to sort of, for lack of a better term, wire itself up, right? But, you know, this starts happening shockingly early. Right. You know, nine months, 10 months, your kid knows that when you smile at them, like they've they're getting crazy and it makes them smile back and they feel good. Right. Kids pick this up relatively quickly. I'm not sure that it's innate. It would be shocking to me if it were, but it's certainly something that a lifetime of learning history by the time you're, you know, an adult, you know. I used to live in the US, I moved from the US to the UK, and there are some very low level social behaviors that differ between those two cultures, even though the language is the same. There are some really small low level cues that you don't notice for a long time. And it it takes a long time to sort of realize what those cues mean or little idiomatic um, expressions that mean one thing in one culture and another thing in another culture.
3: Mike, you just got back from a trip to New Zealand.
2: That's right. My daughter lives there, and, and we went to visit her our first trip. Did you notice any differences in the social cues that you maybe weren't prepared for? You know what I noticed is they're very polite. It's kind of like Canadians. If they're asking a favor instead of saying, hey, could you do this or that, they'll say, I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind helping me. Could you possibly? Right? And then they get around to it. And they never interrupt either. That'll actually let you finish what you're saying. And then after a while, you begin adjusting your behavior. Quick story, we went to a Super Bowl party while we were there. It was a Monday afternoon, actually. But this bar we were at, it was filled with Americans, and a lot of them were fans of the two teams, the Eagles and the Chiefs. Well, wouldn't you know, I wound up sitting next to a big group of Eagles fans. And I'm thinking, okay, this is probably not going to go well. But you know what? They were great. They were well-behaved. They were polite. And that's in spite of the fact that I was wearing a bunch of Cowboys swag. So if all that politeness in New Zealand can rub off on a bunch of Eagles fans, anything is possible. Yeah, if the reputation of
3: Eagles fans precedes them a little bit, New Zealand was the cure. They cleaned up their act.
4: So we use a lot of these cues all the time. They're very subtle and low level. And so they just give you a feeling of reassurance that this person is you know, like you, understands you, and they allow us to take certain social risks. Um, we might disclose more information to someone or information at a deeper level to someone who we feel is more similar to ourselves. And this mimicry piece gives us that feeling component. I think to a degree, both similarity and mimicry do play a role in whether or not people choose to to trust another person. The more we see that someone is like us, the more likely we are to trust them. And in fact, this is also part of our learning history, right? People who act like you, people who look like you, these folks are your parents, right? Your siblings and your friends. And we routinely trust those people.
2: So how much does the setting in which we meet someone impact the level of trust we give them?
4: I think there's an element of how people inter- engage, how people sort of blend the setting along with the person, right? So if you're meeting a new coworker, for, for example, someone new comes to your office and they're introduced, one of the things you know is you're familiar with your with your bosses or whoever might have hired that person. Um, You're familiar with the people who who already work in your office. And you also know that there's been a vetting process that you went through at some point when you were hired. And that vetting process would have given you some confidence in who this person is.
2: Okay, so you've mentioned schools and places of work. I know we put a lot of trust in our institutions to make some of these judgments for us, don't we?
4: Yeah, I think we trust those vetting processes. Should we, you know, I I think that depends, right? Um, Sometimes those vetting processes don't work. People do provide false information from time to time. Um, You know, this is also like meeting someone in a bar. What are they gonna tell you, right? How are they gonna present themselves? And, you know, in many cases, there's an element of sort of self, you know, presentation or sort of, you know, the curation of like how you present yourself. So, you know, if you're going out and you're meeting someone at a bar, you know, you're probably not getting what they look like on a weekend, you know, at at 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. You're getting what they look like when they're out and presenting themselves on purpose in a particular type of space. So there's an element of curation, which we expect to see. And there's also, you know, you don't know necessarily what you get. So you feel like you have to do that vetting yourself. And there, I think, really is where you see those elements of similarity, those elements of sort of interpersonal smoothness that are created by mimicry.
2: Okay, and back to George Santos for a minute, because typically political primaries and and general elections, they tend to take care of a lot of that vetting. How did he avoid that?
4: He presents himself in a way that he thinks people want to see and in, in the way he thinks people want to see them. And that makes sense as a politician right? He does a lot of television interviews. He does, you know, he's sort of on stage and then it becomes easy to act. He uses emotion in a very interesting way, almost as a tool to undercut the things that people are saying to him. Um, There was an interview by Piers Morgan, where Piers Morgan is grilling him about the statement that he made about his mother being in the World Trade Center on, on 9-11. And of course, there's no evidence that she was there. And he says to Piers Morgan, so are you telling me that my mother, li-? basically something along, he implies that Piers Morgan is is accusing his mother of lying to him. And, you know, he's, so he's, he's actually taken this idea. He's, you know, he's indignant at being questioned, but he's Putting that right back on the interviewer in this very clever way. Um, there, there have been a bunch of people recently who I've seen doing these kinds of things, and it's it's a spectacular skill that he has interpersonally. Does that make him more honest? No, nope. but it makes him very believable because it puts the interviewer on the wrong foot.
2: That Piers Morgan interview took place at the end of February.
4: Congressman George Santos claims he has many regrets when speaking on talk TV. He even used the word stupid a few times. He admitted to lying about his college education. He also says he never worked for the big financial companies, as his resume says.
2: Santos stepped down from his two House committee assignments in late January.
4: I certainly think there are elements of trust in certain kinds of information. And and the tricky thing is the degree to which we decide to be critical, right? People are really busy and there's so much information that comes to us now through social media and through the way social media algorithms curate what they give us. I think the way information comes at us now, we tend to be less, and this is it's always been the case that we are less critical of information that seems to correspond with what we believe. These are tricky decisions, no matter where and with whom we make them, but they're also really important decisions to make and ones we have to make as humans. We need to trust other people. Even if it's only just that I'm going to give you my credit card in the supermarket and you're going to let me walk out with my, you know, with my purchases and you're not going to take my credit card information and, you know, go do something else with it. So we do these things all the time. And they have different levels of risk depending on what the outcome could be. So We do our best to figure it out. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. But because we are right more often with people we're familiar with, that becomes a really easy cue. And with people we feel comfortable with, it becomes a really easy cue to base a trust decision on.
2: So for society to function, we need a certain level of trust.
4: We do, we really do. Society can't function if people don't trust anyone.
3: So do you feel like you brought back any of that politeness from New Zealand? Do I not seem polite? I mean, we're not interrupting each other, so I think we're doing okay. Well, that's good. It rubbed off on me, apparently. So maybe you can go back and work on it a little bit more sometime this year. It's 2023. I
2: could work remotely from anywhere in the world. The time difference is a little excessive, though. It is. In our winter, it's 19 hours. So it might actually be worse in terms of doing the morning show. So instead of coming into work at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd be coming in at 10 p.m. and I guess I'd have to work through the night. I'm I'm not on board with that. Uh, I mean, what you
3: do now is challenging. That would be almost impossible. It would
2: just be a graveyard (laughs) shift. I'm Mike Rogers. Thanks for listening to Something Offbeat. This episode, written and produced by Lauren Barry and that guy, Chris Blake, with audio editing by Chris Blake, original music by Myron Kaplan, and editorial support from Cooper Mall. To keep listening, please subscribe to us on the Odyssey app or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear about any offbeat story that you've heard about and you think we should cover. So please send it to us at something offbeat at Odyssey. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com.